0: Welcome to Middle East Matters, a new podcast from the Middle East Initiative at Harvard University's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. My name is Tarek Massoud. I'm a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and the faculty director of the Middle East Initiative. In this podcast, we'll bring you conversations with scholars, newsmakers, and artists from one of the world's most exciting and dynamic regions, the Middle East. To stay up to date on our latest episodes, please be sure to subscribe to Middle East Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other popular streaming services. You can also find our episodes on our website at belfercenter.org slash MEI. And please be sure to follow us on Twitter at Middle East underscore HKS. Our guest for this episode of Middle East Matters is Ahmed Shehabeddin, an award-winning Kuwaiti, Palestinian, American reporter and broadcaster. As in previous episodes, I teamed up with the Egyptian diplomat Karim Haggag to talk with our guest about how the United States looks today through Arab eyes. We think that after listening to this episode, you'll agree that Mr. Shehabeddin is one of the freshest young voices in the Arab world today. The session was certainly eye-opening for me and we hope it will be for you too enjoy. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. It's my uh, distinct pleasure to welcome you to today's discussion. Before I introduce our guest, the award-winning Kuwaiti-Palestinian-American journalist and storyteller, Ahmed Shahebed-Deen, let me explain for you who are joining us live and our listeners who will listen to this later, what precisely we are up to today. The conversation we're about to have is the third installment in a series of conversations we are having with Arab politicians, intellectuals, and thought leaders on the state of the United States of America. We are not talking about the Arab world primarily, but instead we are talking about the world's sole superpower. And the reason we are having these conversations with Arab thought leaders about America is that we believe very strongly that everyone, and especially Americans, can learn a great deal about this moment in their politics by hearing from people who have some analytic and maybe even emotional distance from the events, which may enable them to perceive things more clearly than is possible for those of us who live in this country and eat, drink, and breathe its politics. We think that Arab observers, of American politics are particularly likely to have something important to say because the Arab world has been affected more than most other parts of the world by the outcomes of America's internal political struggles. If you think about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, if you think about the fate of Iraq, if you think about the Arab Spring and its aftershocks, all of these are, if not quite made in America, then certainly assembled with at least some American components. And this means that while Arabs have the requisite emotional distance from the American scene to be analytical about it, they're nonetheless enough affected by American political life to have thought deeply and have something important to say. We began our series two weeks ago with the former Egyptian foreign minister, Nabil Fahmy, and last week we were joined by the distinguished Emirati intellectual, Abdul Khaliq Abdullah later in the series we'll speak to the lebanese journalist uh, raghad dirgham we'll speak to former iraqi prime minister ayad alawi among many others now my trusted co-pilot in these conversations is my colleague uh, professor karim Hageg of the american university in cairo school of global affairs and public policy karim welcome
1: thank you tariq it's a pleasure to uh, co-pilot this project with you uh, how are you doing Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, all is well on this side of the world and very much looking forward to this conversation.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. Thank you, Karim. So now to today's guest. Ahmed Shahab din is someone who defies any attempt to encapsulate or summarize him. He's a citizen of the world, a Kuwaiti of Palestinian origin who grew up between Egypt and Austria, He's an award-winning journalist who has worked for the New York Times, PBS, Al Jazeera, the Huffington Post, where he co-founded HuffPost Live, the company's streaming network. He's worked for Vice and AJ+. Plus. And throughout this long professional history, particularly long for someone who's so young, he evolved from a humble researcher toiling under mounds of paper to a producer toiling under mounds of tape to a presenter and storyteller whose democracies and interviews have told us important stories and which earned him global recognition, including an Emmy nomination. Ahmed Shahabuddin is also an author and an essayist whose writings have appeared in the Huffington Post and Jeddahliya and elsewhere. And they've shed light on the Arab Spring, on US foreign policy in the Arab world, and on the experience of being an Arab in America after 9-11. In 2012, in addition to everything else he was doing, he co-edited a, co-edited a volume of essays entitled Demanding Dignity young voices from the front lines of the Arab revolutions. Finally, in addition to being a world citizen and an award-winning journalist and an author, Ahmed is a symbol. And this might be a label that he would uh, chafe against, but to my mind, Ahmed Shahab din is a walking, talking representation of how the presentation of Arabs and Arabness in the United States has evolved over the last three decades. I, I'm old enough to remember when the only Arab voices that you would hear in this country were those of mustachioed leaders with thick accents and questionable human rights records. And we all, of course, recall the dark years following 9-11, when a name like Ahmed or Tariq or Kareem was an instant marker of, that rendered one uh, questionable. Uh, Today, however, when we turn on our televisions or fire up YouTube or doom scroll through our Twitter feeds, when Americans hear from Arabs, they hear from eloquent, sharp, American-accented, yet authentically Arab people like Ahmed, who shatter misperceptions, change attitudes, and build bridges. So we are particularly thrilled to have him with us here today to talk about this moment in American politics. Ahmed Shabidine, welcome.
2: Thank you. Um, so happy to be here. And thank you for that, maybe too generous of an introduction. Thanks.
0: Th- thank you. You know, before I begin, Ahmed, I did want to offer you and all our listeners from Kuwait my deepest condolences on the passing of His Highness the Emir uh, of Kuwait, Sheikh Sabah Al Ahmed Al Sabah. So please accept our condolences.
2: Thank you. Uh, I appreciate that.
0: So Ahmed, you had a very cosmic, cosmopolitan childhood. You grew up in Egypt. Uh, between Egypt and, and Austria, you said. You are a Kuwaiti. Your family uh, has roots in Palestine. Uh, where did you feel most at home growing up?
2: Well, um, the cop-out answer would be on a plane. <laughs> in, in transit, maybe. Um, you know, you say it was a cosmopolitan upbringing. It certainly was. And it was one that only recently have I really been aware of just how painfully, and I use that word intentionally privileged, uh, of an upbringing I had relative to, to many others in both respective homes. That said, it was also quite schizophrenic. Um, that's maybe a more apt word I would use to describe it in that, you know, you know, we all search for a sense of belonging and for some of us, maybe it's, it's more attainable or more clear, but for me growing up, um, even though I very much felt in touch and connected um, to the Arab world when I was living in Egypt or even in Kuwait and the same is true in the U.S., um, I was always very much aware of my role as an outsider. And I think invariably that informed a lot of my, um, Reporting and also the, the very drive to kind of bridge gaps between not just the two cultures, but between, um, yeah, different cultures and different perspectives on life, because I was constantly forced to adapt in that kind of, you know, uh, upbringing where I was shuttling back and forth between the East and, and the West.
0: So, if if in Egypt, uh, when you were a student at Cairo American College, somebody said to you, Ahmed, et tamine, where are you from?
2: Your answer would have been, I would have said in as strong an Egyptian accent as I could, (laughs) I'm Ibn al-Balad. But you know, it's funny. The truth is I was very much, because you bring this up and identity is such an important part of how we perceive ourselves and others. And I think we're learning that more and more here in in this kind of crazy moment we're living in in the world, but even in America. Growing up, I, I thought I was Egyptian at some point. Uh, in, the, in that, I felt connected to the culture because I was so young and I spent my formative years there. And, you know, I spoke the accent, even though to others it was clear I wasn't from Egypt. I, I had a kind of pride and, you know, language kind of bonds us. And all this to say that, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I always struggle to answer the question, whether it's a mundane stranger, you know, in an airport asking me or on a very esteemed uh, podcast, where are you from? I, I really, I don't know. But when I figure it out, I will get back to you.
0: So, so uh, Ahmed, did you first, when did you first come to the United States?
2: So, it, you know, because facts matter, I was born in the United States. Okay. So I, I kind of came to the world in the United States, but then very quickly I left and, uh, you know, I was living in Kuwait and then mostly in Egypt. So I would say at the age of 17, when I graduated from high school in Austria, um, at a time when, you know, the there was a guy named Jörg Heider in power in Austria when I was in high school. He was a neo-Nazi, much more uh, vile and, and offensive than Trump even. And all this to say that when I arrived from Austria to Boston the year after 9-11, uh, named Ahmed, uh, you can imagine that there was a lot of friction, to use a euphemism, in terms of how... I was relating to people and how people perceived me. And that was a real wake-up call because it wasn't until I was 17, finally outside the Arab world, um, that I became acutely aware of just how Arab I was, uh, whether you know, in terms of customs or culture or pr- pr- perspectives, but also in terms of how others perceived me and, and in turn how I perceived uh, myself.
0: Why did you choose to come to the, so you started college in 2002? That's correct. So, you know, as you alluded to, this was not a great time to be Arab in the United States. Why did you choose to come to the US to complete your education?
2: You know, that's a good question. I think it was always something that I just essentially assumed or expected. Um, I know that's not a great answer. Um, and I think it was also, you know, America's higher education system, as you must know, is is great. And I applied to a bunch of schools and I, I kind of, I was looking to expand my opportunities. I was not entirely sure at all what I wanted to study or do. And, and so I think, you know, it made sense to go to a place that throughout my life uh, always kind of represented um individuality uh possibility kind of infinite infinite possibility for better or worse whether it's true uh the u.s and and the summers that i spent you know i spent every summer in the u.s in berkeley california you know kind of a bastion of liberal culture and then i would you know return to egypt or to kuwait and spend the year there and then go back to california and that's why i use the term schizophrenic because i think i chose to come to the u.s because i wanted to expand The possibilities and to and it felt like the right place and the most comfortable place to do it I was sadly excuse me I should say I might have been a little bit naive in that I didn't I could it would have been impossible to anticipate what I would encounter and I'm not trying to overstate it but in terms of and like many other Arab Americans or you know this feeling of not being welcome and being suspected and being feared, and I think it 's only recently that i I think i 've become aware of how that um, that that reality that I lived for a few years um, and that many of us lived collectively and I think endured is the right word would inform uh, a lot of my personality traits and my professional pursuits and and kind of my attachment to social justice and and how that guided a lot of my work and, and my personal relationships.
0: So, so can, can you talk a little bit, Ahmed, about w- what it is you've experienced during, in those years after 9-11? Because I guess somebody could have looked at your story and said, you know, everybody talks about how America became so Islamophobic after 9-11, but of course, Arabs were still coming here in droves to get their education. So really, how bad could it have been?
2: Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, we did hear, I forget at this point, I think I blocked it out recently, someone kind of understating that there was ever any, any kind of, um, And know, I'm getting sidetracked because I can't remember, there've been, there've been so many, basically, I would, I would put it in this way, I was constantly made to feel unwelcome or suspected, not just by... Uh, authorities or police. I mean, I was arrested. I'm gonna just speak very honestly. Uh, Me and my Latino roommate were arrested. My three white roommates weren't arrested. The charge was keeper of a disorderly home. I was having a Halloween party. I was called uh, a turban head. I was called a towel head, a a sand, and then the N-word by the Boston Police Department. And you know, there was a lot of ignorance I was shocked mostly at the ignorance. I thought Boston University was a great school, second-tier school, but I can't tell you how many people asked me ludicrous questions that really floored me about my upbringing in Egypt. Did you go to school in pyramids? Did you live in pyramids? Did you go to school on camels? You have cars there. And you know, beyond those kind of, you know, those kind of cliches, there was also curiosity because there was so much ignorance and I chose to try to always look at that and focus on that rather at the, at the kind of insults and the ignorance and how that would create problems. I always tried to believe, well, you know, it's like not to be an ambassador, but let me just show people that, you know, there's no monolith in the Arab world and and that, you know, it, it it was, it was definitely um, painful and at oftentimes difficult to navigate. The truth is though, um, it can work for you or against you, depending on how you, I think, what tools you have to kind of, you know, stay true to your convictions.
0: Did, did, did the the fact that you needed to, or found yourself constantly having to explain the world that you came from to your American interlocutors, did that nudge you towards, the career in journalism that you eventually chose. I I saw that you majored in mass communication at BU. Um, Were you like the rest of us whose parents sent us to study here to be doctors, or did you always know you were going to do that?
2: No, that's a great question. I I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I loved to listen and talk and tell stories. And I just loved storytelling as an art. So that was why I went into that school. But I did start in advertising until an advertising professor, you know, pulled me after class. He said, you're so inquisitive. You're so talented. You're so thoughtful. And all these, you know, compliments. He said, but you suck at advertising. (laughs) And, you know. That was a real wake-up call for me because, you know, I hate cold weather and it was, I think, February. I walked home and I was, like, feeling down and out and I just saw a little flyer outside the student newspaper. I really was lost, like many young people. Didn't know what I wanted to do. Of course, my dad, as I'm sure you would imagine, wanted me to do something like engineering or, you know, and he often tried to teach me physics or whatnot. But anyway, all this to say, I saw this poster that said, we're looking for writers for the student newspaper. Walked in, signed up, and... Uh, I would say I got very very um, I got very attached to my to that identity as a nineteen year old of being kind of just this like inquisitive person who would ask stories and journalism was kind of an accident to be very honest about it but yeah, I think that that experience of constantly having to explain myself uh, did drive my desire to help explain other things to other people and to try and kind of focus on on things that connect us to each other, whether East and West, or even within the US, um, because I, I, was, I was acutely aware of how divided we were.
0: When, when you imagined the life that you wanted to have when you were a college student, were you imagining a life in the Middle East or were you imagining a life in the West?
2: <laughs> I, I think the honest answer is the West. I don't know that I would say the US, per se. I think spending um, the last few years of high school in Austria, as difficult as that was, and in many ways, a lot more overt racism. As I said, the year I moved from Egypt to Austria, I was 14 years old. It was 1999. Uh, Jorg Heider was in power. There were people spitting on me on trains and subways, people singing songs in German, Auslander, Auslander, like all these things get out of my country as quickly as you can. So I'm not trying to play the victim or or share these anecdotes with you to to do that. But but it's really that I was very young when it started to occur to me that there's a lot of hatred born out of ignorance and that didn't happen. That happened to me in Europe when I was 14 and then again in the US when I was 17. So I think I would be dishonest if I said that that didn't uh, inevitably play a role in why I chose to pursue journalism, uh, which is essentially the study of the human condition but specifically to focus on human rights and social justice. And of course, being Palestinian, you can imagine, uh, just through the storytelling of my family and, and that sense of loss and the lack of belonging, I think it informed the type of journalism I would come yeah. to to do.
0: But there's something remarkable in that, you know, given the things you experienced as a high schooler in Austria, and then in as a college student in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, you had real experiences with what could only be called racism and ethnocentrism. And yet your response was not to say, oh, I want nothing to do with this part of the world. Once I get my degree, I'm out of here. I'm gonna go back home. You Mm -hmm. instead envisioned yourself leaning into it.
2: Yeah. Um, You know, in hindsight, I think it's clearer to me why that happened. At the time, if I'm to be honest, I think it was kind of just momentum as as you know in our twenties, you know, we we all can I think relate or attest to, to the importance of momentum in life and dictating kind of the turns and and travails of your life. I, I very much felt like I had something to prove. And I was also very conscious of, you know, it wasn't lost on me that I was in somewhat of a unique position to offer a perspective on a very important. <clears throat> Uh, global reality. Like, for example, the Arab uprisings, politics aside, that was the moment in the Arab region, in the Arab world that, that changed things, maybe not forever, but in a real fundamental way. And, and so being in the U.S. and being part of that discussion in the American media realm felt yeah, I wasn't lost, it wasn't lost on me that there was a responsibility and that I was uniquely maybe, or, or at least positioned to help provide a great deal of context that was lacking. And the same is true on, on the flip side. Um, I don't know how effective it, it all was. Uh, you know, I, 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 before we actually went live, I was sharing with Ambassador Kadim that I've come to realize that unfortunately, for better or worse, I'm quite pessimistic about uh, the US today and perhaps understandably so. In a way that I never was throughout all those things that we just outlined, right? Where you know things seemed pretty dark, at least from my community, and for many communities. But yeah, it's um yeah no, I think you know I lean in, right? That's that's the better approach. So so
0: so um, we want to get to talking about the American situation uh in 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 a second, sure. but it, I, I was looking at your Twitter Twitter bio, and it says that you are, quote, shifting perceptions away from dogma and division towards connection and compassion, which I think is really eloquent of of what you've been telling us. So I I wanted to ask two two things. First, what is the greatest misperception of Arabs that Americans have? And you spoke to that a little bit. But then what is the greatest misperception of Americans that Arabs
2: have? That's a great question. Well, I think... Uh, I think one of the biggest kind of misperceptions of Arabs in general is that we're monolithic. Uh, And you could say that about many different groups. But when it comes to the Arab world, it's, it's not just that, you know, from a media perspective, something that was, it was insufferable. I suffered greatly when I saw the ways in which the media in the U.S., which obviously shapes perceptions, at so many different companies I worked for in so many different ways, but very consistently failed to imagine uh, so often um, that there can be powerful storytelling or valuable information or stories in the region that have nothing to do with this lens of terrorism and violence. And, and it was partly because of 9-11, but, but I think one of the from, from a human perspective, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that everybody in the Middle East and in the Arab world, is angry, uh, is also backwards. There is a perception and, you know, these perceptions aren't based on nothing. There is stuff to suggest that either of those perspectives are true, but, you know, that we're monolithic, that we're backward, that we're all the same, that there's no spectrum of, uh, social, norms you know and, and you know it's true for example one thing i'll say one of the biggest differences for me between the us and the arab world is that in the us there is this culture of individuality for better or worse that i always admired and felt gravitated towards especially as a child as my ego was developing and you know in the arab world on the flip side i think there is a culture of conformity for, for, you know, to speak in kind of platitudes. And I think that might have driven some of these misperceptions that, you know, everyone in the Arab world, you know, is the same and is angry and is uneducated and is conservative, not just religiously, but socially. Um, and, you know, it depends who you're talking about. But again, the level of ignorance was obscene in Boston. (laughs) I have to just put it that way because it shocked me. It shocked me. And this is someone who, you know, maybe it's because I'm comparing BU's campus to like Berkeley's campus where people are a little bit more liberal and open-minded. But on the flip side, um, I think the biggest misperception from from the Arab world looking to the U.S. kind of historically in my life might be Uh, kind of the lack of values the vulgarity the folk that that everything is about money And it's, it's I don't know if these are even valuable insights that I'm providing because as I'm saying these stereotypes I, I do actually think there's fair criticisms of of America in this moment that that would go along those lines right mm. that, In terms of what we prioritize in America um, You know profit over people and so on and so forth um, but yeah, yeah, I think, I think the misconceptions work both ways.
1: Okay, well, uh, Kareem. So, uh, Ahmed, if we can switch gears a little bit uh, sure. and maybe uh, draw you out uh, to talk a little bit about uh, America today. Uh, sure. Through uh, Arab eyes or through Arab American eyes as, as someone mm-hmm. who has a foot in, in both worlds. Um, so you mentioned that you were uh, pessimistic, uh, to put it mildly, and that certainly reflected in your uh, public comments on what's happening in America today. I think in one of your tweets uh, I recently saw, you, you tweeted that it, America isn't meltdown. What does that mean to you exactly? I mean, that, that, that's a very strong, strong words. Um, Tell us, what is, how do you see America today? Uh,
2: you know, the term meltdown or broken or whatever you want to call it, um, these are semantics, right? I think one thing is clear. Um, the social fabric of America, I think, has been breaking down for quite some time, at least in my perspective and in my experience, I should say. I think the institutions that we all relied on uh, whether in in actuality or we assumed would be there to protect us and to protect our democracy. Uh, Even before Trump had started to see schisms and failures in terms of trust, for example, it was clear to me for the entire decade that I worked in the US media, that there was a lack of trust, not just in the media, or in institutions, but even in Congress, the very governing body. I mean, I'm talking like single digits in terms of trust in media and, you know, the media, of course, in the context of the U.S. and how I always understood it growing up. And, and I should say, this is one of the biggest differences between the Arab world, at least from my perspective in the U.S., or used to be, is this idea of, you know, freedom of press and that, the, that it's the fourth estate, that it's protected in our constitution and that it plays a critical, not just valuable role. Um you know I, I think it's it's for a long time, whether Arab or European or what Asian you know many around the world uh used to loathe america uh many around the world used to admire America, many used to fear America, sometimes it would all happen at the same time and and I think this moment is really marked by something really strange, which is everyone I talk to, diplomats or not, people who are invested in America financially or, you know, through their personal lives, there is a sense of pity for America, right, triggered by Trump and his kind of onslaught um, that I think is growing in recent years. And so no matter what your vantage point is, I think America is going through a humiliating moment. And, you know, I know we were talking earlier about not taking too much of a macro perspective because, you know, we want this to be all um, substantive. But if you look historically kind of, you know, the downfall of the American empire and, and kind of the soft power that it you know projects and the hard military power. It's, it's, it's always been a matter of when, in my mind, as a student of history, the empire would start to kind of crumble, right? We saw that in the 18th century, the Netherlands was the dominant global power. Then it was the UK and France. Then, the, you know, they kind of fell and the empire fell there. They're still successful countries, but they don't have the same influence. And so, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess I just say, I would say that for the first time in my lifetime, I'm struggling to see how this thing that we always took for granted and in the American narrative and in the American imagination, which is that America will always make a comeback. It will always reimagine itself. Um, that America almost matters too much as, as, as you know, egocentric as that may be. Um, but, but you know, it's not just America's allies and, and enemies, but friends of mine, individuals, people like there's an incomprehension, kind of an uncertainty of the moment that's only compounded by the pandemic of kind of what, what America is. And, and you know, it, it's diminished standing since 2003 because of the war in Iraq um, was maybe a, an acute moment. But if you look back to that, the kind of blunder of Iraq, it almost doesn't compare to what we're seeing today, right? The kind of, again, the breakdown of the social fabric, the exploitation of divisions and fear has always been part of the American narrative. Um, now, though, these sustained street protests, the violence, the racism, more black people buying guns than ever before. Um, and I single out black people because that to me is, you know, I'll tell you, just sorry, I'm, I'm, now I'm rambling a little bit, but a couple of years ago, I was in Kuwait having lunch with my dad. And my dad is one of the... Uh, one of the, I should say one of the smartest men I know, but also one of the most kind of... Uh, he doesn't always speak uh, unless he has something to say. And that's something maybe I can learn from him. But, but out of the blue at lunch, you know, he's sometimes quiet during our lunches. He just kind of muttered after staring off into like, you know, the distance and seemingly disengaged. And he just said under his breath, America is likely to have a civil war in the next five years you know. And it was out of the blue, out of context. No one was talking about it. And obviously, you know, people have been looking at America's trajectory, and as I'm describing it, to be really troubling. But it wasn't until that moment that it all kind of came together. All my personal experiences and all the political kind of analysis that I'd been privy to and and been doing, it seems really as though, um, how can I say it, you know, that we've reached a new level of Division and polarization and Trump is willing to burn the house down and and um, Everyone's kind of at a loss and we're you know, the reason I'm pessimistic is because uh, I've been I, I had to cover Trump's election and then his presidency for AJ plus in the streets and the protest movements and Over the months it became increasingly clear to me that there was a lot of pain. There was a lot of misinformation there was a lot of anger, there was a lot of suffering, but there was no cohesive conversation. There was no willingness, or much less of a willingness to listen to each other. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, we're at a point now where uh, it feels as if America's glory days are over.
1: So so Ahmed, th- this is very interesting. I, I, I want to press you a bit on how this is all perceived through uh, Arab eyes, right? From the point of of the Arab world. Because a a lot of what you described, you know, challenges, um, uh, uh, conventional views around the world about what America stands for, you know, a superpower, a democracy, a powerful country, you know, a government that that works, that's functional, that delivers. I mean, uh, a a democracy, uh, all of these things. But earlier you, you mentioned, uh, and I was very struck by this, about how um, uh, some uh, views, some Arab views towards uh, America are very cynical and the uh, America's about money, uh, it's vulgar, and so on. Uh, but I think you would agree that there's also another uh, strain in, uh, of thought in the Arab world that does look to America as a source of ideals, right? An ideal or maybe idealized image yeah. right. of, uh, as a country that stands for democracy, freedom, human rights, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, I mean, irrespective of, of, uh, of how far reality does not really match the, the, those ideals. You know, how, how, how if, if you were telling the story of America to an Arab audience, right? How would you tell that story?
2: Well, in this moment, if I were to tell the story of America and kind of what's happening here, I think invariably it would be a very familiar story for a lot of Arabs. Um, And I say that in so much as, you know, I think there has been a complete top, you know, led by Trump focus on profit on 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 how can i say this i think the priorities in america and the foundation of america and the idea of whether idealized or not is is you know it's like an emperor with no clothes but it's like america with no clothes like we're starting to see the really ugly underbelly that's always been there but is being uh, purposely exploited for trump's personal gain but also for you know the political um, personal gain of of this polarized kind of landscape that we were at. So I think, I mean, you know, it's, I don't know if this is answering your question, but it doesn't surprise me that a lot of Arab governments are some of Trump's biggest fans. And it's not just because, because of the sort of autocratic strongman perspective. And I think some of it has to do with geopolitics. But I think, you know, the America of today is, is, and again, people will think that I'm naive and maybe this is an oversimplification, but the truth is it's starting to feel a lot more familiar for those of us who have been in the Arab world complaining about some of the cyclical inability to evolve in certain realms of you know, governance in the Arab world. Um, that said, I think the concept of liberty and freedom is again what i initially said you know this idea of individuality i mean you know i remember when i was in public school for a year i only went to school in public school in, uh, in california for a year i had to learn to recite the pledge of allegiance you know to the flag and indivisible you know w- with liberty and justice for all there is no liberty and justice for all in america and that should be not just like that would those kinds of truths i think would be some of the biggest um Surprises to some of the younger populations in the Arab world who have long continued to see as much as there's anger towards the US There is an idealized kind of idea of, you know Freedom and liberty, especially among certain minorities in the Arab world, right? and I think that's important because that is the America that so many of us whether it's an idea or it's an actual thing within reach, you know, the American dream. It's something that I think we are all beholden to, through its soft power, through Hollywood, through films, and so I think it is a it is a it is a tragedy of sorts that um, I see so many similarities today between not just the the way Trump conducts himself as a leader, so to speak, and how it's similar to parts of the Arab world, but also kind of the the kind of um, Failures and bureaucracies in, in the U.S.
0: So, so if I could just follow up a little bit, because there are three really important threads that I, I wish we would we would follow. I mean, sure. the first is you've you've described an America in decline, an America decaying on a variety of different dimensions. But I wasn't clear on the the cause, and it's to the extent that you identified a cause it seemed like it was trump that what happened is that the united states had the bad luck of having appear a in its midst a politician who would pick yeah. at all the scabs in in this country is that am i am i getting that wrong or is trump really a symptom of something else and if so what is that something else
2: um i think I think you know Trump is certainly I think Trump is a symptom of a fail a series of failures um most notably I would say in terms of priorities um I don't need to give you all the statistics about hospital beds and the healthcare system in America and how catastrophic it is I don't need to give you I mean I'm happy to <laughs> uh talk about the failure the undervaluation of teachers and the 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 so many the series of of kind of failures when it comes to uh protecting our education system especially like you know general education um i think there have been a series of i mean look like america's reputation america's isolationist kind of policies this is trump is only he's not just a symptom i think he's exploiting a moment he exploited in 2016 a moment of deep division that many before him are responsible for helping to create and i think the divisions you know we talk about systemic racism we talk about all these um systemic problems in america and the not just the lack of wanting to actually address them but maybe and more troubling the inability of the current kind of system to actually mm, prioritize things that are important for the well-being of the entire economy. You know, when, when we, Trump, for example, talks about the economy as the stock market, and there's just such a divide, such a deep disconnect. We even put Trump aside for a second. Long before Trump ran for president, I was covering and speaking to the young Americans and, you know, American mothers and families, and the thing that I constantly kept hearing is that they felt there's regardless of whether they vote Republican or Democrat in this system, they feel as though, and this is again you know uh highlighted by the single digit you know tr- percentage of trust Americans have in their government, let alone the media um there's kind of like a collusion between um, corporations and the government that Almost overlooks a large percentage of the American people's well-being, both their physical health, uh, their sense of possibility. I know this might seem a little general in terms of my my analysis, but it's it's kind of like this is a moment that would have happened with or without Trump, and all Trump managed to do is, and you know, one of the biggest things I tried to do as a journalist in the years right before Trump and during Trump was speak to the people that Trump, uh, that, that, you know, felt the racial resentment after Obama. I mean, to ignore the role of race in America's story, in the Trump story, in how we got to this point, to ignore how much racial resentment there was that we had a black president. And then on the flip side, you know, from white America, if you will, and forgive me for making things seem so like just no, white and black and because they're not, but on the flip side, you look at the black community. They finally had you know, Obama and did their lives change that much? You know, you could argue that by some measures for people of color, for minorities in America, things were worse um, or things weren't that much better. And so I think the timing, you know, timing matters in life and, and you know, whenever people describe Trump as masterful or not in, you know, or a genius in some crazy sense, I mean, if there is any genius to his madness, it's, it's in recognizing opportunities to exploit divisions and to personally gain from them. And again, this feeds into a broader culture in America that I think is worrying. You know, America has been governed by an extractive mindset, like much of the capitalist world for a long time. Um, and the reason I bring up extractive versus regenerative is I think that Trump is the embodiment of that. You know, the embodiment of, and we've heard him say it tirelessly, winning at all costs, not really worrying about consequences or who else is impacted. And, you know, I think that's why he has done well with um, certain, in terms of his relationships with a lot of Arab leaders. They they speak his language. He's, he's um, a lot less... Uh, he's willing to protect their interests in ways that perhaps Obama wasn't. And so, yeah, I, I think Trump is very much a symptom, but I could have never imagined, I think many of us would have would have never imagined that he would be this successful in his failings.
0: You, you know, you, the, the, I think you are correct when you point to all of the ways in which the United States is not living up to its potential. Yeah. But somebody might respond and ask you, Ahmed. Okay, Please. so show me on the globe. Here's a globe. Pick the country that that is the ideal that you want the United States to uh, to to live up to. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, there's absolutely the abstract criticism to be made. But then when we think about the places on planet Earth that one might prefer to live in over the United States of America, I don't think Ahmed Shahab has a long list.
2: You're right. Uh, there are a few countries in Europe right now that I'd be happy to entertain you and engage you on that conversation uh, in terms of COVID and how they're handling it. But even beyond that, just um, social protections that don't exist in the imagination here or in actual policy, but what about
0: the individualism and the freedom to chart your own life path and the diversity of influences? I mean, does any place really come close to, to this enough. country?
2: No, and I appreciate you pressing me on this because it is kind of, uh, you know, and I use the word schizophrenic, but like one minute I'm I'm in agreement with you. But, you know, when I hear you saying that, um, for better or worse, uh, thought, and maybe this is reflective of how pessimistic I've become, are those attainable? Those are ideas. Those are ideas that, um, that have long been used to describe America. And there is a foundation that does support those ideas. But in the last four years, I think there, it's hard to overstate the damage in terms of not just whether those are attainable, but the public and the, and the majority of Americans trust and belief and ability to see and imagine those things to be true for themselves. Um, to your point, you want to compare. I mean, you know, I don't know how to say it. I, I think um, it's an odd kind of conundrum because, you know, I want to believe that you're right that you know still we haven't completely lost that um, i don't know i don't know it's well, a good well, question
0: well let me let me ask a, a, the question in a in a different way and then i think what karim and i want to do is ask you some questions about the the, the upcoming election and particularly what's right. at stake for the right. arabs in it but before we get to that so if we asked if we went to the average uh, citizen of 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 the Ooh. the world from which you and I emerge and Katie emerges and we said to the average Arab, um, what do you think? Do you think that America is in decline? They'd say, absolutely. Yes. America is in decline. They'd agree with you, but then they'd give completely different reasons for why America is in decline. They would point to our newfound consensus in the United States on gay rights. They would point to the accelerating acceptance of trans men and women as fully legitimate, beings who are making legitimate choices about how they want to author themselves. They'd point to just our ever expanding notions of the freedom of individuals to choose how they live their lives free from the shackles of religiously or historically defined moralities. Now somebody else might look at those exact same things. You and me, for example, we'd look at those exact same things and we'd say, that is what is great about America. Those are America's contributions to the world. And so right. I guess what I want to ask you, isn't it true, Ahmed, that if you care, and I know you do care about toleration and personal liberty and the freedom of people to explore themselves right. fully, right. that if you care about those things, America is still the only game in town. It's the shining city on the hill. It's the beacon of tolerance. It's the mother load of good ideas. And that If America does decline, if America somehow finds itself in a diminished role, that's actually not good for the people in our parts of the world who are trying to expand the boundaries of freedom because America, for all of its flaws, I'm stating a case, I'm not telling you that I believe this case, but I'm trying to state it and and to steel man the case, that if yeah. you, America has for the most part been the wind at the backs of people who are trying to expand the scope of personal freedoms around the world.
2: When it comes to personal freedoms, I think you highlight a, a conundrum that many of us who live with one foot in each part of you know, the Arab world and the US find ourselves in. Because first, just quickly, not that I'm trying to retort against because I do see the value in what you said, because I do also believe it's a widely held position. And it's one that a lot of young people in the Arab world uh, share with me and that we discussed and engage me on. That said, for example, there have been 30 murders of transgender people in the US uh, in 2020, more than ever before uh, since we started counting. Now, that's not to counter that there's been an expanding of you know, maybe the social consciousness around these choices and these liberties and these freedoms but you know as you know there's always a pushback when you move forwards Uh, there's always progress and then a little bit of a regression and I I guess I guess what I would say is when it comes to person like don't get me wrong there is more at stake now in my mind for America to to succeed and to thrive and there's you know for all the reasons that you stated and and when a place like america starts to seem or starts to diminish in terms of its power or its influence or even more more appropriately its ability to unite its people and to provide for its people and to uh, you know america's always represented promise the promise land if you will for lack of a better term if not for americans for many people around the world and i think that's your point but i would also say that this idea of American exceptionalism in my mind, and perhaps this reflects again, how it's been clouded by Trump's um, all Trump's kind of doings. I think it's, it's, it's not as convincing um, as it once was. And I think there are many places you could argue in Europe where where people might see um, a combination of realities uh, when it comes to these personal liberties that you're talking about and a context in which those personal liberties are not as threatened, even if they're not as advanced. I think there's, it could be perception, but there is a real, and perception dictates reality, it let's not forget. Like, you know, for as much as we can, any of us can, can accurately say what America is in this moment. There is a deep perception um, that 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 things aren't protected that we used to assume are protected. Not just but, what but, but, but Ahmed, but, Ahmed, yeah. Ahmed.
0: You spent the much of the first half of our talk, explain yeah. to us how perception is not reality. If perception is reality, then we Arabs are, in fact, the terrorists no, and backward no. people perception, that they perceive us to be.
2: Dr. it. There's a, there's a distinction. I said, perception dictates reality. Not meaning that perception becomes reality. Forgive mm-hmm. me, maybe I'm not being clear or articulate. What I mean is, for as much as we perceive things to be for as much as we perceive things about ourselves and the what the moment we find ourselves in that influences what actually plays out in reality it doesn't mean that is the reality and i just Mm. i think if you look i mean honestly anecdotally anecdotally i've lived in new york for 10 years there are more murders in brooklyn and in new york than ever before in many many years and i see it in the streets and it's 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 There is a perception, I feel, walking in New York City streets of being unsafe in a way that I never used to. And is that because I'm perceiving, you know, the media and I'm watching too much, uh, you know, TV or what have you? No, it's also the way in which people are interacting. You know, fear is a very palpable motivator in terms of behavior. And I think I think people when people are fearful, they are easy to control and co-opt. And so. I don't want to delay this part of the conversation, but like, I think, you know, it's not a coincidence that many demagogues and others use fear to control people. And I think Trump's been very effective at doing that, but he's also been effective at making at least those of us who, who value those personal freedoms and liberties. He has made it feel whether it's true or not. And I think it is true that we're losing. We're losing the guarantee of that trajectory. And, and I don't think, you know, a Biden election or a Biden win is, is going to, I think, it'll be a lot better. I think we'll be further towards that role. Maybe we can re-engage with the world and we won't be so isolated. But I don't know that it's all just going to become better. I mean, if you look at a lot of economic markers um, in terms of individuals, not the stock market and like corporations, but like your average American things aren't getting better. And I think our perception that things aren't getting better limits our ability to actually
1: um, move forward. So so, uh, Ahmed, I think we need to spend just a few moments um, talking about uh, the implications of all this for the relationship between the United States and the Arab world. Yeah. There was a time when, the majority of Arab countries would look right. to the United States to solve their problems. You know, right. whether those problems are uh, democracy, whether those problems right. are development, solving these right. conflicts, or even providing protection or security right. for Arab countries. Given everything you've described for us today, does that view still hold? and i guess the flip side of that question is should it hold i mean you as a, as an arab american what would you advocate to uh especially the youth in the arab world to look to the united states to solve the region's problems uh no i in fact i welcome that
2: <laughs> i welcome that um, shift that um you know, I think it's always been a bit problematic because, you know, we need to distinguish between Arab leaders and Arab people. Uh, as I'm sure you know, there's often a distinction. I think, you know, the people don't necessarily look, and I don't know, maybe, maybe we disagree on this, for the U.S. to so-called, so, you know, solve their problems. Um, I think there is and there should be a role for the U.S. to play in terms of guaranteeing, and again, I'm speaking like ideally, as it has in the past. And I think there's many signs you could see in varying countries, including Egypt, where this has become kind of a crisis point and a flash point where the US and civil society and institutions, especially around human rights and accountability and transparency, not just in governance. I think there's a role for America to play to protect some of those freedoms and liberties that, you know, thought it rightfully mentioned. Many people in the Arab world look to the US and look to people who, who have moved here uh that they're able that they're afforded these you know i know for example just anecdotally i know many people uh from egypt a handful of people who are close friends of mine who in recent years have left egypt due to persecution and and several other arab countries around sexuality for example right and they find a home in this moment in america in this madness uh in america and they feel despite all the things that we've outlined that that suggests America is, is diminished and is, is struggling, um, they find real, they find solace. And, and they find, they're, they're, they remind me that, there, of course, there is a role to play. Uh, I do think, though, that Trump's sort of isolationist policies and his unwillingness to hold a lot of Arab uh, leaders and and their governments uh not just accountable to america by any means but accountable to their own people as we've seen other administrations do um that is just another one of the kind of you know historical roles of america and some of the kind of normalcies and the norms if you will that trump has completely uh abandoned
1: i think that's go ahead this is the question should should the united states play that role I mean, is it for the United States to uh, ensure that Arab governments are somehow, to use your words, accountable to their publics? Um, I think it's hard to discuss
2: that without looking at the other ways in which America influences the Arab world and Arab governments in terms of aid, in terms of, you know, you know, kind of Trump boasting about saving MBS from any accountability on the tape with Bob Woodward when it comes to, you know, the killing of a journalist, uh, of course, Khashoggi, Uh, the $8 billion in arms sales that the U.S. has given to Saudi, for example, the role in Yemen, um, you know, to to take away kind of the the politics out of it. I mean, I'm not trying to, to, to answer your question, just so people don't say that I'm evading the question. I think there is a role for the U.S. government and U.S. institutions to play in terms of protecting um, whatever, you know, liberties are afforded to Arab populations. But I also think in terms of their, their, the, I think the U.S. has a role. I don't think they should be doing nation building as we were doing in Iraq. I don't think, but, but I, I reject this idea that the U.S. should have no involvement in, in and as if it's even feasible in terms of, um, shifts that the Arab world may be able to make to afford more plurality, more of voices and more, and to afford their citizens more protections and um, liberties.
0: Uh, Ahmed, we want to open uh, up the discussion to include members of our audience. But before we do that, I, you know, you've spoken quite eloquently of the importance of these ideals of, of freedom and uh, personal autonomy that America stands for if imperfectly, but that are yeah. really universal values. How, how are we gonna get these things in the Arab world? I want you to think
2: forward. The, the, the what do they say? The multi-billion trillion dollar question uh, in any sort of debate? How, how do we attain them? What is the path?
0: Yeah, tell me a story of how these will come to the Arab world. That that might be too too hard a question.
2: Well, well, let me let me tell you this. Uh, the general answer, I think, and I've thought about this a lot over the years, long before Trump's kind of you know threatening of, of some of these uh, things in the U.S. I think if it is to happen in the Arab worlds, unfortunately, it's my belief that it will come through. A, a process of deep and serious crisis. Um, I, th- I know this may seem vague, but also depressing to some of us who might want to believe that there are more, <laughs> more, uh, more there's a path towards reform or progress in this sense that is incremental and that is a trajectory that we're already on. not so sure that that's true i think the internet for example has dramatically changed um, our perceptions of what is possible in the arab world especially amongst different generations and so i think you're starting to see a stratification um, that is quite troubling but also in the long term in the event of a crisis in one arab state or in the region at large and by crisis you know it's almost odd to to say that because of course the reason region has been mired in crises, both economic and political for many years, but I can't envision, I think through art, through culture, through storytelling, through those things will, and have quite frankly, pushed the needle in pockets of the region. But if we're to be honest, I don't see, I think it's important. I don't know that that is the main pathway towards change. I think, you know, it's like when they say things have to get a lot worse before they get better. I just, um, for as long as, um, for as long as uh, I can remember, I've wanted so desperately to see that come to fruition in the region. And I wouldn't say I'm less pessimistic of that now, but I would say there are people who are tirelessly pushing the needle forwards and the reason that I think it doesn't move forward is because there are too many mechanisms in place where even those people that are pushing the uh, the pushing the envelope forward invariably have to answer to those mechanisms and those interests that that push them back down
0: this is this is a a, a, a much longer conversation yeah, uh, sure. and that but, but but you know certainly when when I look at the Arab world, I do see the gradual march towards greater openness and freedom that is coming really from below from mechanisms. Like you talked about uh, the internet traffic with the rest of the world. But, but it sounds like you also feel that there are some, some breaks on that, that need to be uh, surmounted through It's They're going to take some energy to surmount. I, I just, I, I actually want to close with one last question, you know, because you are clearly a very pessimistic uh, <laughs> gentleman.
2: Yeah, but- no, not always. You know, I'm sure people, I don't know what's happened in the last four years. I should just quickly mention thought it that the disillusionment I, I came to realize after covering Trump in 2016 and the exhaustion, I think not only depleted a part of my physical stamina, but also my, inte- not intellectual, my emotional stamina in terms of um, believing that things are gonna get better. So perhaps that's what's 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 marking this, uh, miring this in a little bit of pessimism.
0: So, so you may have obviated the last question I was gonna ask before <laughs> opening it up, which was if we push you to try to get back in touch with your optimistic self, how yeah. do you think the US might emerge or get out of this current moment and transcend the forces of darkness that you see swirling around it?
2: Um, Creativity. You know, we talk about American ingenuity. Uh, We talk about, for as much as I mentioned, the education system, you know, being in shambles in terms of the general education system. I think when it comes to higher education, there's so many interesting things happening. Um, I think that it will not come from strictly, I think the ballot box will be a part of it, but I think it's gonna, I think there's gonna have to be a kind of reimagining of what America is because I really, really believe that this issue of racism that America has consistently avoided to tackle uh, authentically and with accountability in a serious way has held America back in ways that we can't even, I mean, you know, the best scholars and people I respect have, have outlined it all, but I think it will start by addressing the truths. You know, we celebrate Thanksgiving and Columbus Day and and the division on social media of those who are like lambasting those truths, and then those who are attached to it because they're so scared to let go and for America to change. and. You know, America is not going to change and life is not going to change for the majority of Americans until we look in the mirror. It sounds cheesy, Um, but we've managed to be this is why I talk about priorities. Like we've managed to avoid prioritizing the things that actually matter when you want to measure a country's well-being. And that's collectively and individually. We overlook healthcare, we overlook education and teachers and the importance of that. And then we have this moment where our education system, our economy, our healthcare system are glaringly failing compared to a large part of not just the advanced world, but other countries. And to have the vantage point where I was in Kuwait, a country mired in a lot of its own problems and instability and uncertainty politically and economically, and to be looking at America. And I guess this is where the the pessimism comes from, to see America just, uh, you know, given to its worst sort of um, traits and and to see, I think there needs to be a more radical shift uh, beyond when I talked about extractive earlier, like, you know, to a regenerative economy. I did my last story for AJ Plus was going to Texas, which is the bastion of you know conservative culture and oil and, and whatnot. And and I did a story that I'm so proud of because it gave me hope. And so maybe this is a nice way to bring it all full circle. Short version is there are a lot of young Republicans in Texas who are actively working towards um, renewable energy and Texas leads America in renewable energy, even if Trump is pulling out of the Paris climates. And I found that to be hopeful. Why? Because for as much as I want to believe that you know those young conservatives are morally worried about the wildfires and climate change. That's not what was motivating them to invest in climate change and to believe in climate change and work towards renewables. What was doing it is that we've reached grid parity and that it's now economically lucrative. And that is a mindset that is very that drives a lot of people's decisions, both individually and collectively, in the conservative and Republican space. And one thing I think Americans don't do enough is we don't look to places where we can compromise on maybe our values. But fine, this is why when you read that Twitter description, it's like we can double down as Trump has on the divisions and what sets us apart. Or we can say, hey, you don't think climate change is real. You don't think we should, you know, do this for all these moralistic reasons. Fine. You're motivated by money. Let's regulate that within reason, but let's use that motivation to work together to make sure America is the leader of renewable energy. Why is it that China is creating solar um, in, in, Anyway, the point is America in many ways has I think abdicated its role in terms of pushing innovation. And even for me to say this is controversial, right? Because historically America has always been hailed as the bastion of creativity and innovation, not in the last few years not in the fields where it matters and not in the fields that are going to dictate what governments and what societies thrive. Climate change is real and it's not a political talking point. And this is true for the Arab world too, right? These states that are now, you know, Kuwait, I'm Kuwaiti. Kuwait may be tapping into their after oil fund because of the pandemic. And a lot of governments around the world are scrambling in this moment. And, and I think America, to, to bring it back to your question, it's just compromise uh, uh, and, and realize that, you know, if we want to achieve, we have to work together. It sounds cheesy, but there is no, con- there, is no there is no, there is nothing that the, the there is very little, I should say, <laughs> that makes me feel as if there is even an awareness of, of how divided America is uh, when it comes to dis- on the decision making level.
0: So so I will I will say that uh you know I, I asked you to uh try to think optimistically and you sorta of did. <laughs> uh, and I think in your answer you invoked a lot of kind of quintessential American characteristics when you talked about, for example, those young folks in Texas. You invoked this kind of American ingenuity and can do it attitude. When you uh, invoked creativity as one of the pathways that we're, is going to get us out of this moment. Again, mm-hmm. you're invoking something that I think is, you know, particularly unique about America. So I, I think even you believe America that <laughs> the fundamentals are still there, but I'm going to, I want to let other Uh, people in our audience uh, engage with you. So uh, uh, what we will do now is open it up for questions. And ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question of our guest, Ahmed Shabeddin, you can use the raise hand function in Zoom. And you can access that by looking at the bottom of your Zoom window, clicking on participants, and then on the right-hand side of your screen, there should be an option for you to raise your hand and then I will uh I will I will call on you. Uh, and then I'll invite you to unmute your uh microphone and, and you can ask your question. So uh the first question I have is from uh Sultan Saud al Qasimi, senior fellow of the Middle East Initiative, uh, a great friend of our program. Priest Sultan, go ahead. Sultan, for some reason you're not your sound is not coming through even though you're unmuted let me let me try to do it myself okay so can you unmute again now it, the the icon is saying you're unmuted but we cannot hear you this is true Okay. This is a. This is a. a okay. We'll come back to uh, Sultan while we work out that technical uh, difficulty. So uh, the next person I have on my list is the uh, distinguished Kennedy School student Devika Balachandran. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm in Professor Masood's class, and I'm always asking questions. Um, so this <laughs> is really exciting to hear from you. um, I'm really curious to hear, so you said that, like, America hasn't really shown anything that indicates that it is moving towards becoming less racist, to simplify um, what you were saying earlier. And I'm curious, um, outside of, like, investing in healthcare and education, which would broadly target, like, everyone and not specific minority groups, what are some ways Potentially including or aside from reparations, that you think would indicate that America is moving in the right direction.
2: Good question. Great. I I know this might seem overly simple, but I have I regret to say that I think we don't listen, and we have a short-term memory. Um, if you look at you know, America and how it's the story of America and how it's been told, you look at people who are controversial scholars, if you will, such as Cornel West and others who have rightfully highlighted, I think the answer to your question in a way that is much more eloquent than I ever could. Um, You know, we've seen, and again, when I say perception dictates reality, I thought, I really appreciate you uh, uh, challenging me a little bit on that because it's true. It's not, um, it's not absolute, but black people and the perception they must have, you know, of their value, you know, their, their value, not just because of what one cop does or 600 cops or, you know, the police brutality, or, but all the different ways in which they suffer. And are we really listening, not just to them, but are they listening to each other? When we have these sorts of conversations in these forums, I can't tell you how many times you know of course Palestine and when I advocate for the for the rights of Palestinians as a journalist or as a speaker or in the u s context it's often dismissed disparaged, but even when like i am I am always um, I am always how can I put this I am always dismayed at the way in which we Listen to each other when there's a, mo- a flashpoint, a moment of op- an opportunity to learn, And what ends up happening is in this cancel culture and in this 24-hour news cycle, and in this social media siloed walled-off identities of, you know, not just liberal and conservative, but even all of the divisions between liberal No, you're two socialists, and you're, you know, it's almost like we listen to what we want to hear. And it's like the confirmation bias phenomenon of social media, I think is actually culturally infiltrated into even offline, how we, how we approach disagreement and how we approach, uh, how attached we are to outcomes and to fulfilling what it is we believe based on our own socioeconomic you know, status or what have you. Um, I'm curious though, sorry, I don't want to ramble too much. What do you think might be other than education or in um, investing in education as well as, um, as we talked about. What, what, what do you see as maybe a glaring a missed opportunity?
0: Is this me you're asking or my student? No, your student.
2: <laughs> okay. Oh, she, she's muted. Sorry, oh, I was just she, curious. Because maybe, maybe you had a thought that informed the question well
0: well you know what you know uh, sh- uh, i can attest that uh, devika has uh, many thoughts and they're all excellent but in in order to just keep us uh on time because we have a, a um so i am going to read out sultan's question and then sure. I will call on our colleague, uh, Gary Seymour, formerly of the Kennedy School, currently the director of the Crown Center uh, for Middle East uh, Studies at uh, Brandeis, and my personal uh, role model and hero. But um, let me ask uh, Sultan's question. So Sultan says, uh, uh, Ahmed, you spent 10 years in some of the most prestigious media firms. Do you still feel that traditional media has a role to play in strengthening understanding between the U.S. and the Arab world, or has it been compromised on both sides beyond repair? Fantastic question.
2: A role to play, just remind me in in what specifically? In
0: strengthening understanding between the U.S. and the Arab world.
2: Ah, Sultan always with the questions. Um, So relevant too. I can't honestly say that there is no role to play by simple virtue of the fact that there are people like Ayman Muhyiddin and others who have to use a you know, very common term that we're we accustomed to when referring to Muslims or Arabs who have infiltrated the mainstream media. (laughs) Um, And the the reason I, I start with Ayman is he brings, in a casual sense, a kind of accountability and context to any coverage of the Middle East in a way that I think has been sorely lacking. Now, on the flip side, I do think that the reputation and the relevance, quite frankly, in the, in the debate or question of the Arab world and the U.S. and the relationship between the two. I think the mainstream media is falling way behind other forms of uh, interfacing and storytelling. And that's where I think art and culture and programs and protest movements and um, the ways in which you can still connect with groups um, I think that's, that's a lot more promising um, in terms of moving us forward uh, and that relationship forward. I think there is no shortage of ways in which them, and I've seen this both personally, as I started saying earlier in the conversation, where it's so difficult to convince um, the decision makers, if you will, in that space of mainstream media not just Palestinians, but any Arab story is viable, is interesting, is engaging, is compelling, is useful to an American audience or to their audience, uh, unless it fits a very conventional and, and mundane and kind of, you know, this, this story and this narrative that we've come to know. I mean, I, I, I can't overstate how quick people are to dismiss other stories. And that's where it's interesting. You know, the one good thing about social media, I mean, you know, back during the Arab uprising, Sultan will remember that's how I met him in part, uh, you know, the prolific tweeter that he was. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I've admired about about him and others, uh, you know, there was a moment where social media felt like it could potentially change everything, the game here, the game there. And it seemed like, you know, this powerful tool for the better. And I think if you look now, many of us who who saw that moment and lived that moment and saw the potential and the possibility that social media brought in terms of um, progress in the region, especially for youth, it's kind of been flipped on its head in terms of how social media is both used in the Arab world to suppress, uh, to target, to divide. And quite sadly, it's all the more glaring how it's being used to do that in the West. And that's where I think, I that's the I think the birth <laughs> of my pessimism that has become kind of the the, the sidekick during this um, conversation comes from my inability to marry and kind of <sighs> trust <laughs> that um, there is hope because I think the mainstream media in America has abdicated a lot of its responsibilities for the U.S. but also all hope is lost when it comes to the Arab world. Um, Quite frankly, that's why I'm not working for the US mainstream media right now. And maybe that's not the best thing to say, but um, I just think it's a bigger part of the problem. Just look, for example, very quickly. I know this doesn't have to do with the Arab world, Sultan, but this whole controversy. And just to bring up the whole Kamala Harris, Rachel Maddow, MSNBC thing yesterday. um, The fact that NBC is running, you know, Trump's NBC, the network, that build this man that has almost so, you know, destroyed America, if you will, to use the media's kind of inflamed rhetoric. Um, you know, here they are doing like short term memory. Lesson wasn't learned. Still giving him free airtime, you know, despite his threats and all that he's done and still laughing it off on air. You know, and I'm not criticizing Rachel or Kamala for laughing it off. I mean, it was a funny moment yesterday. I'm not providing enough context for those who missed it. But this idea of laughing at the fact that a network that created a man and and perpetuated a false illusion that he was successful and that he was all the things that he told us he was that he turned out not to be, um, that, that we're still here in this moment, four years later, and they're gonna do it again, I think says a lot about the um, impotence of American media. And it's, it's, yeah.
0: Presumably it depends on what they do with him once they have him on the air. In other words, like you could imagine that if they- Of course. Ask him tough questions, then we would say that this was a good thing to have done.
2: If they ask him tough questions, I will give you whatever it is you want from me.
0: Okay. (laughs) Okay, uh, our next question is from uh, Dr. Gary Seymour, uh, Director of the Crown Center. Welcome, Gary, let me unmute you. You should be able to, yep, yeah, great.
3: Thank you very much, Tara. Thank you, Ahmed, for a really eloquent presentation. So I'm, I'm really surprised that you don't see this upcoming US election as a defining moment for the American character. I mean, for me, if Biden mm-hmm. wins decisively, which I think he will, yep. It's a sharp renunciation of everything that Trump stands for, and mm-hmm. it's a validation of Biden's platform, which is based on unity, uh, racial justice. His candidate's a black woman. Um, you know, a regenerative economy, uh, even personal morality and uh, human rights and foreign policy. Not, not that Biden will solve all the problems. Of course not. Nobody, right. but. Right me if you want to be optimistic the fact that the american people i think are very likely to correct the mistake they made in 2016 is the most optimistic yeah fact i can think of
2: well uh, if i may forgive me i appreciate you bringing up that point the one thing i will say on this is you know anything's possible right including a landslide where there would be very little doubt on election night but I would, I would uh, you know, very respectfully invite you to tell me, you know, I hate to say this, but as a journalist who, you know, facts are the foundation of our, our craft, um, I can't tell you how many times I came to the really depressing realization that many Americans may have also come to, that facts don't matter in this moment. It's not that they shouldn't matter, it's quite the contrary, but it, it has been proven, proven, that facts don't necessarily matter at least for a large half if not small minority of the country. Now the reason I mention that is because even if Biden were to take a commanding early lead, I mean what Trump has managed to do is you know with a plague and a recession and the catastrophic politics like there is it's not possible that there's going to be a constitutional crisis in my mind it is probable, right? And if you look at kind of Trump's egomaniacal and all that he's laid the groundwork beyond calling it the China virus and beyond all the mail-in voting and all, he is, he is and this is again, where people might even call him masterful. There's no fail safe kind of measure against this constitutional crisis that is in my mind probable and very likely. I mean, I see it being, regardless of the lead, I think there's gonna be a post-election kind of struggle in the courts. And that's obvious to anybody, right? And both sides are preparing for that. It's going to happen in the streets as it has. And I think it'll be bigger depending on how big the margin is. And, you know, again, back to what my dad had mentioned, that moment of like him, like glaring out into the distance in a very creepy way. If I were to ever reenact this, which I might very well do, he, it was almost like a premonition. And I'm not trying to, when he said civil war, you know, we can also define, well, what is a civil war? And I don't necessarily think that's as likely, as his tone suggested it might be. But all I'm trying to say is there's a very likely scenario where Trump um, is going to do what he has consistently promised. He's going to burn the House down, his Republican allies, as you know, who have so far seemed so willing to kind of play these parts and support him uh, for their own benefit and gain. I mean, and obstruct kind of the emergence of any sort of unambiguous victory for Biden in in the Electoral College. Which is in of itself a huge problem, uh, and was in 2016, as we all know. So I just think Trump has laid the groundwork for this kind of post-election legal maneuvering that's going to circumvent the results, regardless of what the results are. I genuinely believe that, um, especially in the battleground states. And I think, and I'm not a constitutional scholar by any means, but my my brief understanding is that the Constitution is vague enough. And specifically the Electoral Count Act that a contested election is going to continue for months. I mean, we talk about, you know, America in this moment. I mean, the machinery of, of democracy, for better or worse, is I just think there are too many variables. Um, uh, and so, I, you know, I'll be, I'll be frank. I was thinking of going for the winter back to the Arab world, back to Kuwait, to be home with my parents. if, if You know, that was like a possibility. And... Here I am actually in Florida, is where I find myself, where President Trump tonight is in Miami, which is where I am, uh, and he's gonna be giving, you know, his town hall and it's gonna air on NBC. I mean, what a failure of, to Sultan's earlier question and to bring the two questions together, what a failure, regardless of what they were to ask him, what a failure to give a figure like this because of the protection the, you know, the presidential protections or deference. Why, are, why have we in the media, it took us years to say he's racist. People have been fired from their jobs for calling the president a racist. Did the president get fired for the series of, you know, like obscene and arguably illegal, if not arguably, clearly illegal or like corrupt, let's say, So I just think, again, when we talk about priorities, when we talk about, I hope you're right, Gary. I think you may be right in that this is a watershed moment. I just wish I could believe, having seen the media and others fail to not only hold the president accountable, but quite frankly, hold ourselves accountable. And that was the biggest failure on display on Rachel Maddow's show last night. And, you know, I like her as much as the rest of the people and the pundits on MSNBC, but, but it's, it's I think it, we shouldn't understate how serious uh, this moment's gonna be. Plus, let's not forget that, let's assume Biden thinks he wins because of the electoral college and Trump thinks he wins because he thinks he always wins. What's gonna happen then? You're gonna have one person come in on an in inauguration day and he's gonna be Biden with some kind of deep state ties. And then you have the president with all the powers of the presidency coming in and saying, no, swear me in, I won. We contested the election. It's in the Supreme Court. Look at what, I mean, to understate this moment of constitutional crisis and how real it is, I think is dangerous.
3: So, I mean, I'll say if you're right that Trump is able to successfully contest an election he's lost, then I will join you in deep pessimism and I'll move (laughs) to Canada. But if I'm right, If Trump fails and Biden wins, I take that as not only the strength of American democracy, but also tribute to the American character that they rejected Trump and everything he stands for.
2: I have never in my life after this conversation wanted to, and forgive me, I didn't even realize that I'd sound so pessimistic. I wanna believe that I share some optimism with you. (laughs) Uh, The one irony, and, and we might not have enough time to discuss it, if Biden wins, I'm gonna be happy hopefully you know a lot of americans are going to be happy but you know who's not going to be happy
3: yes msnbc and cnn
2: that's true and also mbs and many other arab leaders who have been very pleased with trump's relationship and and you know what he's affording them and what he's not affording them even at the expense of the american experience so there's there's a deep irony in that but But I hope, Gary, we're right. You're right. I really do. Inshallah.
1: Inshallah. Ahmed, uh, I think before we close, uh, I'm hoping we can get you to reflect uh, quickly uh, about something we did not talk about, uh, which is the role of Arab-Americans in all of this. So clearly, Arab-Americans have... Integrated uh, very successfully in American politics, American media. I mean, you mentioned in uh, American academia. I mean, our host uh, for this conversation happens to be a leading light uh, in that context. Um, and, and of course, uh, prominent uh, American members of Congress, Arab American members of Congress. Um, that's, of course, different than um, organizing as a community, right? And by that, I don't mean um, uh, in a partisan way. I mean, I assume there are uh, uh, Arab American Democrats, as there are Arab American Republicans, right? Sure. The role of the Arab American community uh, in the midst of this polarization, in the midst of this anti-immigrant sentiment, in the the midst of uh, of this uh, uh, situation of economic uh, inequality, will be and how do you see yourself as a member of that community it's a great question i'm glad we're ending
2: on this uh because as pessimistic as i may have been one thing that is undeniable is i think you've seen the emergence of a group of arab americans that have maybe more media attention not in the mainstream per se but real inspiring figures often on social media. And I hate to talk about these young Arab Arab Americans, but in a lot of ways, they are responsible, I think, for uh, breaking some of the perceptions of Arab uh, Americans for other Americans. But specifically within the Arab American community, I think, you know, um, it's it's a bit of a struggle, though. And I'd be curious what you think, because from my understanding, there is a lot of division in terms of what is the most important issue for different groups of different Arab immigrants, based on how long they've been here, where they're coming from. Some people care uh, deeply about what's happening back home, and that dictates and influences their views and how they choose to engage. Um, But on a grassroots level, I think it's undeniable, and not just because of, you know, Rashida, Tlaib, and others, but, and not just in the political realm, but, um, you know, in influential roles, I think we've seen Arab Americans more than ever before, not shy away from asserting their, their views and their beliefs. Um, I don't know that you'll have like a voting, like, I don't know if you're t- speaking in more in a voting block or in the context of the election, or if you mean just in general.
1: No, I mean, even beyond this election. I mean, the, 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 the election will happen, you know, the, yeah. the Arab citizens will vote uh, however they vote. Um, no, but just beyond the election to, to address the, the challenges, the many challenges that you so eloquently spoke about uh, throughout this conversation.
2: I think, I think, um, I think I know this may seem simple, but storytelling and telling our stories and not being afraid to be as arab as we are as well as as american as we are not that the two have to be incompatible but at least for me and i don't know if this sheds any light on what you're saying at least my generation and especially the younger ones which scare me quite frankly in terms of their aptitude on all these social platforms um there's been such a there's been such a kind of um, uh, embracing of arab culture and almost like a Main Street, like on TikTok, and you know, I, I don't use TikTok that much, but I think to deny the cultural significance and impact that TikTok has, for better or worse, on young Americans and young Arab Americans, but at large, and also on the general culture, uh, would be a, would be a misnomer. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's important just to keep connecting and telling our stories, and and um, I think we're doing that with ease, and I think we're doing it where. There's more interest and it doesn't have to be uh, that, that quintessential Arab immigrant story. I think, you know, the story of Arabs in America in different pockets like Syria and how how long, you know, Arabs have been in America and how maybe overlooked they've been and how we've also maybe overlooked our own uh, potential influence. And I think it's, it's definitely encouraging to see uh, people connecting around things that matter to them both in you know insular arab uh, american groups and then also you know we, we used to speak in 2016 uh, especially after all the 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 women's march and all that about intersectional resistance and that was a very kind of popular topic and i think i think we're starting to see that and that our arab americans and other minority groups are engaging with each other and caring more including jewish americans i mean we didn't talk much about the topic of palestine but Uh, ironically in all of this I would say regardless of Biden and Trump's policies uh, I think there's a lot of things to be there's a lot of progress maybe not a lot there's a sufficient amount of progress when it comes to the question of Palestine the discourse around it obviously an issue that's important to Arab people in the Arab world but also uh, you could argue important to Arab Americans in in the US Um, so yeah
0: so, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have come to the end of our time with Ahmed Shahabuddin. I think you'll all agree with me when I say that we've just experienced the special treat of being in touch with a great communicator, a unique mind, a reflective soul, and a humane spirit. You can follow Ahmed on Twitter, where his handle is at ASE. On behalf of my brother, Karim Haggag, I wanna thank you all for joining us today and to express our very fond hope that you'll join us for other conversations in this series of Harvard AUC dialogues with Arab thought leaders on the state of the United States. Ahmed, thank you.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening. This has been Middle East Matters. I'm your host, Tariq Massoud. Special thanks to Patrick and Daniel Lazor for music and to the incredible team at the Middle East Initiative, Julia Martin, Ava Weber, and Michaela Bennett. To stay abreast of new episodes, please subscribe to Middle East Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other quality streaming services. See you next time.